let's look at this story in Galatians chapter 2. If you were here two weeks ago, Paul was recounting to the Galatians a story. Basically, they, you know, there were these false teachers that had come in after the Apostle Paul had preached the gospel to these people in Galatia. He'd preached the gospel there, and then he had left, and then some other teachers came in after him, uh, teachers that seemed to dog the Apostle Paul wherever he went, saying that Paul wasn't really teaching the true gospel because he wasn't teaching Gentiles that they needed to be Jewish in their culture, that they needed to adopt Jewish cultural standards. Since Paul wasn't teaching the Gentiles to do that, he'd garbled the gospel. And the reason these false teachers were effective was because Paul had had some interactions with the other apostles. So what the false teachers were saying, this is a review from two weeks ago, but it's important to understand context tonight. Paul had met with some of the other apostles. And so the false teachers were saying, look, he got the gospel from the other apostles and he got it wrong. Now we've come from direct from the other apostles to, to correct his mistake. And that was plausible that was a plausible idea because he had actually met with these other apostles and he had spent some time with them. And so Paul has to kind of go back through the story of what's happened. And it's not just to defend himself, but because the very nature of the gospel, the good news, is at stake. Paul has a very different understanding of the gospel than these false teachers. Uh, basically, they've turn the gospel upside down, and thus it's not good news, which is what that word literally means anymore. Because what Paul was teaching and what the early church believed, remember if you've been with us, this is Paul's angriest letter, and it's one of the earliest letters we have, earlier than any of the gospel accounts. And because it's such an angry letter, you get, you get to find out what the early church thought was most important and worth getting angry about if it got distorted. So it's a very helpful letter to us. And what Paul said the gospel is, is God saves you by his grace. And then you, your life changes when that happens to you. What the false teachers are saying is believe God, try and live as well as you can, and then his grace will meet you and carry you the rest of the way there. And Paul says, while that sounds good, it actually is a denial of the very gospel. And we're going to look at that. And look at how he takes this idea of the gospel of grace and applies it to this issue of racism in this letter here. So, if you would, look, at me and, uh, look with me at chapter 2 of Galatians. We're going to start reading at verse 11. And Paul uses the word Cephas here. That actually um, was Peter's name too. Peter, Cephas, they use different names, right? So that's who's being talked about, all right? So Paul says this, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that's one of the other big apostles, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, these certain men came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. I know there's all kinds of backstory here that I'm going to have to explain. So stick with me and I'm going to do that. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, whose name ironically means son of encouragement, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their contact, 
conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, or literally, they were not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And you all understand exactly what that means, right? No, believe me, I'm going to explain it. It's not, it's not immediately apparent, but when I explain it to you, you're going to understand he's basically using the gospel to confront him rather than saying, Peter, you're a racist. And Peter, Paul goes on. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I've proved myself to be a transgressor. And then the, the passage actually goes next into a section that may be familiar to some of you. You may not have heard much about this story, but you've probably heard, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? And we're going to talk about that next week because that's one of the most misunderstood passages in the entire New Testament. And I want to have a whole week to explain what that is and why that matters. But let's pray and then we're going to dig into this story. Super important principle for us to understand about living the Christian life and why the gospel needs to be at the center. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. Even though we're separated by centuries and culture, Yet, Lord, this is your word, and we pray you'd help us to understand it and sink it deep into our hearts tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, is Peter a racist? I mean, he's hanging out with Gentiles. That means basically anybody that wasn't Jewish is considered... Did I hand out the, the outlines? They got handed out, right? Awesome. Peter's basically hanging out with the Gentiles. He's eating with them, which means he accepts them as equal eating with them. And then some people come along and out of fear, he caves and he quits eating with them. And Paul opposes him to his face. Now, what is going on here? You know, it's been well said that this passage we're going to look at tonight doesn't so much teach us what the gospel is. We've been talking about that and we will talk about that again as we go through Galatians. This passage really teaches us how the gospel operates. That little phrase where Paul says, I opposed him and told him he was not walking in line with the truth of the gospel shows us that the gospel is not just some doctrine, abstract, esoteric thing that you need to make sure you believe so you can check it off on a quiz someday. No, the gospel is a power that makes you live in a particular way. And there are ways that you can live that are in line with it, and there are ways you can live that are out of line with it. So this is a passage about how the gospel operates. And it's a passage where all of us need to, to be, even examine ourselves and say, is the gospel a power in my life that I'm living in line with? Well, what does that mean? To, to get into this, I need to help explain the story in its context. So that's where we're going to start. First things you need to understand about these false teachers that we see here is they were saying faith in Christ by itself is not enough to make you beautiful in God's sight. If you want a, a shorthand way to think of justification, that word justification appears different times in the Bible. It's a very important word if you want to understand what Christianity is about. 
And it means to be beautiful in God's sight because he looks at you and he sees the beauty of Christ. In other words, it means basically being beautiful in God's sight because he sees you as one who has done everything he's ever asked for. Not because you've done it yourself, but because Jesus did it. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you get credit for the life he lived. There's no better way to say it than that last hymn that we sang. Uh, I remember when I found that that was a hymn text, I was just amazed and, and really glad. Because for years I'd used this quote by C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. He said, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. That, in a nutshell, is what Christianity is about. Upon another's life and upon another's death, you stake your eternity. You put your faith in the death and the life of Jesus. And when you do that, it's not just that your sin gets punished and dealt with on the cross. You also get credit. You get the beauty of what Christ did. The life that you read about in the Gospels. This life of love and honoring God. Jesus, who says, it's my meat and drink to do the will of my Father, is the only one who can answer God's call to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. God does not grade on a curve. He made you to love him and to honor him with everything you are. And the reason Christianity is good news is because we proclaim one, namely Jesus, who lived that life and died that death that we couldn't die. That's the heart of the gospel. But the false teachers were saying, that's not enough. You also, just to make sure that you keep God's smile, you have to make sure you live the right way. And they had a lot of ideas about what the right way was. It involved all these Jewish cultural practices, like you need to eat certain foods and not eat other foods. You need to make sure that you don't hang out with people that may be unclean because they didn't obey all the laws the right way. And particularly Gentiles, they're unclean. They don't obey the Jewish laws. Therefore, if you hang out with them and come into contact with them, you yourself will be unclean. That's what they're saying. And so what's going on here, Peter is saying by interacting with these Gentiles, he's Jewish, and yet he's eating with Gentiles, something that Jews would never do because it might make them ritually unclean. But Peter is saying, I don't believe that way of cleansing is operative anymore because now that Christ has come, all that those clean laws were pointing to has been fulfilled. And if our hope is in Jesus then Jew or Gentile alike are clean and beautiful in his sight. So when he's eating with Gentiles, he's not, just, he's not just showing kindness to them. He's acting out the revolutionary gospel that what makes us who we are is not what we've done or not done. It's what Jesus has done. And when we put our hope in him, it changes everything. And it did change everything. Peter, Peter was no longer living according to whether or not he was clean by what he ate and by who he hang out, hangs out with. But then he shrinks back. And when he shrinks back, though he may still be saying, I believe in grace, he's undermining it by the way he's living. The way we live speaks. It speaks about where our true trust is is. 
And while Peter may have still been saying, I believe in Jesus and his grace, functionally what he's saying is, I don't believe it at all. Otherwise, he'd be eating with Gentiles, okay? That's what's going on. The second thing is, you need to understand, to, to understand this story and its significance, is these false teachers just won't quit. I mean, here's the interesting thing, right? Paul, in the last little section, what we talked about two weeks ago, he went up to Jerusalem. He talks about how he met with Peter, James, and John. Out of all the apostles, there were certain apostles that were more prominent and seemed to rise to leadership status. Peter, James, and John were the apostles in Jerusalem who had risen to that status. Paul is another apostle who's out preaching the gospel in a lot of non-Jewish areas, okay? But it, there was a point at which he went back to Jerusalem and he met with these other apostles. They talked about the gospel. They all agreed that they believed the same thing about the gospel. They even shook on it. And you would have thought that would be enough to shut up these false teachers because the false teachers are saying, Paul is preaching a different gospel than Peter, James, and John. And we're here to tell Paul's converts how he got it wrong because we're bringing the true message from Peter, James, and John, particularly James. You would have thought that when the four apostles met and shook on it, that would have put an end to it, but it didn't put an end to it. They wouldn't stop. And when Peter, when Peter undermines the gospel they all agreed on, it's a serious threat to the church. This is not just some abstract little point of theology that they may have gotten wrong. If Peter and his example is not dealt with and the true gospel proclaimed and reestablished, well then all of you who think you're Christians but aren't obeying the Jewish food laws would have been left out of the church. Like the only reason Christianity has been able to spread to every nation and fulfill God's desire for the gospel to go to people of every race, tribe, tongue, and nature, nation is because Paul prevailed in this confrontation. Because it looked like the truth that God cared about all the peoples, not just Jews, was in danger of being squelched. So this is pretty relevant and a pretty important story. You see, to eat with someone in this culture was to say, you're an equal with them. And the issue here is, how can a Jew eat with Gentile sinners? And I really think the way Paul uses that phrase here is not saying they're worse sinners than us in actuality. He's basically using that with a bit of sarcasm because that's the way these Jewish false teachers are saying, we're the Jewish believers, but they're the Gentile sinners and you can't eat with them. The third thing you need to understand about this story is that these false teachers really had caused Peter to cave. They start putting pressure on Peter and he caves because he's afraid. Verse 12 talks about that. And later in verse 13, it says, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So Paul says he's acting like a hypocrite. He's saying he believes something about the gospel, but then he's giving the lie to it by the way he lives. And that's why Paul says, I had to oppose Peter to his face because he's not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. But it's, again, it's fascinating that, Pe that Paul doesn't just say, Peter, you're a racist. 
And God has revealed that he cares about all the nations. He said that to Abraham when he called him to himself. He said, I will make you a blessing to all the nations. It's a strong theme that runs all through the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, Paul, or God had said in Deuteronomy to the Jews, I didn't choose you because you were the best people. I didn't choose you as a nation because you were smarter. As a matter of fact, I chose you because, he says literally, you were the most stiff-necked, stubborn people, and you were the smallest, most insignificant people. That's why I chose you, that you might show the glory of my grace to all the nations around. But the Jews kind of started to get in their head, well, if he chose us, we must be better than other people. Even though he told them specifically that was not the case. But it's pretty easy to go from thinking, well, God has told us something that's true, to thinking he must have done it because he likes us more. Even though the gospel undermines that and comes against that, it happens to religious people all the time. Actually, I would argue it happens to everybody. Everybody has something in their heart where they long to be beautiful in the sight of God and others. You can't get it out of your heart. You can try and push it down. You can try and fill your life with distractions to quiet the roar. But every one of us was made to bask in the approval of another. If the Bible's true, then what it says is that you were made to hear God say, you are my child in whom I am well pleased. That's what God made you for. And it's no wonder that you're trying to get that somewhere. And if you can't hear it from God, and you can't hear it very clearly, well then you will try to find somewhere, something to make you feel like you're beautiful. Race is one of those. Whether you're dominant culture, minority culture, it actually cuts both ways. You can feel better than other people because of what you enjoy or because of what you suffer. You know, like we sang in, in one of the songs, you know, it's not our tears. You know, the, the idea even that you could take your suffering and turn it into a basis for self-righteousness and looking down on other people, but it happens. Charles Spurgeon, that great Baptist preacher, said one time, do not make your wounds a rival for the wounds of Christ. The Bible says it's by his wounds that we're healed. But a lot of people, a lot of people try to sort of say, God, you owe me your grace because of how I suffered. Please don't let your wounds be a rival for the gospel of Christ. It doesn't mean your wounds are irrelevant, but don't let them become your badge of righteousness. But it can happen, all kinds of things. Let's look at the principle that Paul gives us here to understand how we can deal with this. Because here's the good news. If you think, well, I'm just a people pleaser or I'm just a racist, there's not much hope in that. There's not much hope in that. But what Paul says here gives us hope because he analyzes Peter's issue as more than just about behavior, more than just about ideas, and ignorance, he analyzes it fundamentally as being about worship and about justification. He says this, Peter, you're not walking in line with the truth 
of the gospel. Now, notice, this is so much deeper than just following the rules. And so what Paul is saying here is that there is something beneath your behavior. That beneath all sin, like racism, like people-pleasing, like whatever you want to put in there, there is a kind of self-justification that must be dealt with for real change to happen. But here's what I want you to understand. There's hope in this confrontation, even in this kind of rebuke. Because if Paul had said to him, Peter, you're a racist, quit it. Just stop. Have you ever seen that, that amazing Bob Newhart little video? Do, do you know Bob Newhart? You guys don't know. I grew up with Bob Newhart. He was this great old comedian. And for a while, he had this TV show where he played a psychiatrist. And it's, it's really awesome. And you can get on YouTube and look up Bob Newhart, H-A-R-T, N-E-W, H-A-R-T. Anyway, there's one thing where he basically, you know, is promoting this deal where in five minutes or less, he can, he can solve any problem. And it's only going to be five bucks. So this guy kind of walks into, his, walks into his office and he says, okay, now, you know, you're going to give me your five dollars and you're going to tell me your problem and I'm going to, I'm going to help you, you know, be healed of it in, in five minutes. And, and the guy's like, okay, are you ready? And he's like, yes, okay, good. And he sets the clock. The guy gives him his $5. He says, okay, so uh, tell me what your problem is. And the guy says, well, you know, I'm just really afraid of this. And, you know, the, uh, he starts talking about all this deep, dark stuff. And Newhart looks him right in the eyes and goes, stop it. <laughs> stop it. Just stop it. <laughs> and that's it. He takes his money and he sends him out, you know. <laughs> you got to watch Newhart do it. It's awesome. But I mean, in so many ways, that's like what Christians tell people all the time. And we can laugh at it when Bob Newhart does it, but I hope that you weep when you hear Christians tell people that that's the key to living differently. Because you don't have the power to just stop it. Because what you're doing flows out of your longing to be beautiful in the sight of someone. And you can't excise that longing from your heart. John Calvin said one time, the great um, reformer, he said that we basically are made to worship and that we're, our hearts are idle factories, that we're always manufacturing things to worship rather than deal with the real God. Because the real God is so unmanageable and uncontrollable. We would much rather put our hope in something that we think we can control, like what other people think about us or our grades or how much money we can make. There are so many more manageable things that we can put our hope in. But when we do that, we never quiet the roar in our hearts that we need to be beautiful. So Paul tells us here, beneath every kind of thing that you look to for justification, that you look to to make yourself feel beautiful, there is sin. And there really is a particular kind of sin there's a resistance to the gospel of grace. That's what, that's what Paul is saying here. Peter, you're denying the very gospel of grace. You're denying the whole basis for your existence by what you're doing. I know it may seem like a trivial thing. You just don't want to eat with the Gentiles because it bothers these other people and you don't want them to be bothered with you. But what you're doing is undermining the gospel of grace. And if you undermine your foundation, where are you going to stand? Right? The gospel is the way to address 
every problem. Now, here's why. You know, basically, you know, I think it was Flannery O'Connor that said one time that people in the South avoid Jesus by avoiding their sin. Like, people in the South love to pretend that they've got it together and that they're just good people, you know? And therefore, they don't really need a Savior. Uh, you know, there, there's been many writers, Tim Keller is one of the more recent ones, who said that there are basically two ways of avoiding Jesus. One is by trying to keep the rules so that you don't need his grace. The other is to make your own rules, to basically assert, like, he doesn't get to tell me how to live. I'm going to be the one to decide how I live. So it's basically two ways that you can try to save yourself. The religious form is to say, well, here are the rules. Here's how I'm supposed to live. Here's what Christians expect me to live like. So I'm going to do it. And a lot of you have been raised in, in settings where that's kind of what was expected of you. And I find people come to Belmont, sometimes they're still caught in that, trying to live up to those expectations, trying to use that to quiet the roar, trying to use that to feel beautiful, but they just never can do it consistently enough. And often, while they're trying to keep up appearances at the same time, their heart is growing more and more cold. Because more and more they're seeing God as this cruel taskmaster who's never satisfied. There's no grace. They don't want to read the Bible. Why would they want to read the Bible and just find out all the things they're not doing? They don't want to go to church and hang out with Christians because they just feel guilty all the time. If The longer you've been hanging out with Christians, the more guilty you feel and you consider yourself a Christian, then you really may have bought into a false gospel. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones was this great Welsh preacher. Man, if you ever just could hear him say the wrath of God, like you would be converted on the spot, I'm convinced. Um, but he, he said, you know, basically 90% of people who claim to be Christians are be functionally believing what the false teachers are teaching. They basically believe, yes, I think God loves me, but I'm just going to make extra sure by living the Christian life and living it to the full. And basically, you know, they don't feel like they're doing a very good job, and they feel guilty, and they feel God is disappointed in them, and they wonder when they're just going to throw the whole thing away. And that's when they go sort of to the irreligious way of trying to save yourself, which is to say, I don't need anybody to tell me how to live. I'm perfectly capable of deciding how I want to live on my own. Of course, what's fascinating is these people really never can be set free from what other people think. There's always somebody or some group that really is functioning as their God. I've never met anybody that was truly self-referential without any concern about anybody else and what they thought. Because we were made for community. And so you have these two ways of, of salvation and every issue that we struggle with can be thought of in those terms. So how does this apply to racism? Let's look at that. You know, Paul analyzes Peter's racism, not just as behavior, but as a functional false gospel. He, 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 let's go back through this story and let me help you understand even what he's saying, okay? So certain men came from James. We don't believe that they really were reflecting what James thought, but they claim to be from James. And they claim that James says that Jewish Christians need to continue to obey Jewish laws. So when these people, Antioch is a Gentile city. There's not really any Jews there. And Peter, even though he's Jewish, is living 
with the Gentiles, hanging out with them like one of them, which is God, what God wanted. It actually took a lot for Peter to get to this point. In the book of Acts, in chapter around 8, 9, 10, you can read about the story where God had to give Peter a vision of this sheet coming down with all these different animals, some that were clean and allowed for Jews to eat and some that weren't. And God gave, spoke in a voice and said to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat, even though there's unclean and clean animals on this sheet. And Peter said, no. And three times God had to give him this vision. And finally, Peter comes out of it, and then this Gentile guy comes and says, hey, will you come preach the gospel to us? And Peter realizes God wants the gospel to go to Gentiles, not just to Jews. And all of this way of thinking about separation because clean and unclean, Jesus has done away with that. But it took a vision and a revelation three times from God to get Peter to the point where he would eat with Gentiles. Okay? It was a big deal. It was a hard thing. And now... These guys from James come, and he backs away from it. And it affects all the rest of the Jews that are there, because Peter's a leader. And what he's done is public. Even Barnabas, who is Paul's close associate, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, has now brought great discouragement to these Gentiles, who now inevitably feel like we're second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. That's what they were made to feel like. The irony is Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is the one who participates in this. So because it was public, because it was by a leader, Paul says, I need to rebuke you publicly. But again, the way he does it is he says, you're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. And then look here, let me, let me unpack for you verse, uh, the rest of verse 14 and verse 15, because it's a little hard to understand what he's saying. But what, Peter, what Paul says is, if you, Peter, even though you're a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, that means you've realized that you don't need to keep all the Jewish laws to be pleasing to God. You're living like a Gentile who's come to understand the gospel, and that's good because that is the gospel. But even though you're a Jew, you live like a Gentile, and that's good, not like a Jew. How can you then force Gentiles to live like Jews? Do you see how crazy mixed up this is? Peter, you came to understand the gospel, and you realized you didn't need to obey all the Jewish laws to be pleasing to God. But now you're making the Gentiles, who never should have had to obey those laws, feel like they need to obey them to be pleasing to God. You've turned everything upside down, not just for yourself, but for these other people. You've taken this gospel that was to be a blessing and you've made it a curse. And then he goes on in verse 15. We ourselves, he means you, Peter and me, Paul. They're both Jewish by birth and not Gentile sinners. And again, I think there's sarcasm there in the way he says sinners. Yet we know, here he appeals to the gospel, reminds him of the gospel. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. You're not made beautiful in God's sight by what you do or by what you don't do at all, no matter how religious it is. We're not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, in order to be beautiful in his sight by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. He basically says the same thing twice. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one can obey well enough the law on their own to be beautiful in God's sight. So he says, that's the gospel you believe, Peter. Do you realize that what you're saying with your actions is undermining the very heart of the gospel? And then in verse 17, it's interesting. 
He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What's going on there? I think this is the tender part of the confrontation. I think what Paul's saying is, you know, even when we try to believe that Jesus is enough, and yet we still are shown to be sinners and broken, weak people, does that mean that believing in Christ makes us sinners? No, it just means we're worse than we thought we were. And, you know, that's really the heart of it. Like the gospel, the good news of the gospel is you're worse than you think. But Jesus and his grace is better than you think. And you don't go any deeper in the gospel by pretending that you're not a sinner. And I love that Paul says to him, Look, if I rebuild what I tore down, what did he tear down? He tore down his attempts to be righteous in God's sight and beautiful in God's sight by his own obedience. When he came to Christ, he tore that down. He said, no more will I try to build up my own righteousness, my own beauty. I'm going to leave all that behind. You know, there's this great story about David Dixon. Have you ever heard him tell about this? David Dixon was this old Scottish covenanter, lived back in the 1600s, and on his deathbed, he was asked, how is it with your soul? He said, I've taken my good deeds and my bad deeds. I've thrown them together into a heap, and I fled from both of them to Christ, and in him I have peace. So many people don't have peace because they're hoping their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. But a true Christian... A true Christian who's come to understand joy in the gospel is one who's fled from their good works and their bad works. Everybody repents of their bad works. Christians repent of their good works because they know they're not good enough. They know that they're not beautiful enough to make God smile. Doesn't mean you're as bad as you could be, but you're not good enough to make God smile. Oh, you may be able to fool other people. You may make your parents smile. I hope you do. I hope they smile at you a lot. But God requires you to love him with all your heart, mind, and soul from the moment you're born to the moment you die with no variation whatsoever. It's what you were made for. It's what you'll feel most satisfied being. And the promise of the gospel is one day he's going to make you like that. But right now, we're treated that way because Jesus lived that way. Okay? So Peter you know, needs the gospel. And Paul gives it to him. He says, let me call you back to what you believe. Because what you're living is not what you believe. I know what you believe. This is what you believe. Let me help you connect the dots. And so here, let me get to the last point here. How do we need to use this? You can read some more about racism if you, if you want to see how this works out. But I want to jump down to this last point. How do we learn to do gospel confrontation like that? Because, you know, Jack Miller, a guy who I I think very highly of, who's passed away now, one of his sayings he used to say that I was very fond of, niceness will kill a church. Niceness will kill a church. Thank God that Paul wasn't very nice to Peter. Because the gospel going to Gentiles, non-Jews, could have been lost. Humanly speaking, you know, I don't think God's plan would have been thwarted. But this was a big deal, right? And 
Paul had to be the bad guy. And here's my question. Is RUF going to be a place where people can give you a life-saving rebuke when you need it? And can you be somebody who can give a life-giving rebuke? Because you don't get to live very long in community before somebody needs a life-giving rebuke. Needs to be called back to the gospel. My wife was talking about, telling me about a story when she was in high school and a friend of hers had told her that he was suicidal and didn't want her to tell. Probably made you swear not to tell because that's what people do sometimes in those situations. Don't ever swear that, by the way. But she, uh, she had to go tell the guidance counselor. And she wrestled with it, afraid of him hating her forever. But you know what? He got help. He hated you probably for a while, huh? Yeah. But he's married and has three little kids today. Right? He lived. Sometimes you need that. You can't help people very much if you never come against their false beliefs and their false ideas. You don't help people very much when you just tell them to change their behavior or to change their feelings. You help people when you help them see how they're trapped in a way of living that's out of line with the gospel. Here's what I want you to see. A couple lessons or a couple thoughts about confrontation. First, Peter, Paul, Paul talks to Peter face to face. He doesn't go behind his back. He talks to him face to face. He does it publicly because Peter sinned publicly. And the people that were watching him, that were being confused about the nature of the gospel, needed to be helped. He was a leader, okay? But Paul does it when Peter is clearly in the wrong and was falling into a pattern. Now, that's important because there are two verses when you're thinking about, should I confront this person about something? Two verses you have to put together. One is in 1 Corinthians 13, love covers a multitude of sins. That means you don't nitpick. That means you don't, you know, take it upon yourself to point out every little flaw in your friends. But at the end of Galatians, in chapter 6, there's a verse that says, it's actually at the very beginning, chapter 6, verse 1 in Galatians it says, if you see a brother or a sister trapped in a sin, then you who are spiritual should restore them gently. You have to wrestle with, is this person trapped? Or if they just, is this just a, a, one of the multitude of sins that needs to be overlooked? Peter was trapped. He was trapped. He'd given into his fear and he was living out of line with the truth of the gospel regularly and consistently. Okay? And that's important to try to discern. And then the third thing is that Paul confronts Peter by appealing to the gospel they have in common. It's so easy to just sort of, when you feel like you need to confront people so often, it's because we want to get something off our chest. So often it's because we're built, this tension is building and we just need to, that will never be helpful. I'd almost, I mean, I won't make this a rule, but I'd say a general principle is you're not ready to confront someone until you really don't want to do it. <laughs> Pray about it. And when you feel like, oh, I really don't want to do this, then maybe you're ready to do it. If you relish the idea of going to confront somebody, please don't. Please pray. Please wait. Because you're not in a position to restore them gently. And you're not what the Bible would determine to be the spiritual one who can restore them gently, right? 
He doesn't tell Peter he's just breaking the rules. He doesn't work directly on Peter's will. He doesn't shame him. He calls him to think and connect the dots. This is what I know you believe. This is what I know you're about. And you're not living that way. And it breaks my heart. And I long for you to be different. And he takes Peter deeper into the gospel. He uses grace to motivate, not guilt. He urges Peter to recall the gospel. You know, the Bible is full of this admonition that we would remember, remember, remember. Because the gospel is about something that happened and that came to us. And the Bible is regularly calling us to remember and rejoice the glorious gospel. And that's, you know, Peter was afraid. He was afraid. And, and you, can, you can manipulate somebody who's afraid by using something they might be more afraid of. Like, quit being a racist or God will strike you down. But that's not really changing the heart. It's just exchanging one fear for another. You can jury rig the heart for a while that way, but eventually your heart will fight back. Grace is the only thing that changes the heart. And he doesn't, like I say, confront Peter from a higher place, but he says, I need grace and I'm not above being a hypocrite too. Right? At the very end there, what I showed you. So what would it take for us to love like that? Well, we need the gospel. Because you can't love like that as long as you're dependent on what other people think about you. Right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the only way you can be that kind of friend is if you know you have a friend who doesn't love you because you've measured up, who doesn't love you because you keep him happy all the time. The only way you can disappoint other people is if you know you have the approval of the one who created you. And he's thrilled with you because he's thrilled with Jesus. That can set you free. That can set you free. The gospel is not just to be something that everybody here can say, yep, I agree with that. Awesome. Check it off the list. It's to be a power that runs through our community. But the only way it can do that is if we get set free from what other people think about us being the most important thing. That doesn't happen automatically. You've got to regularly remember and rejoice in the truth of the gospel. You have to regularly sit down and say, God, wow, you love me? You love me? I just can't get over that. Help that melt my heart. Because right now, I care way more what that person thinks about me than the fact that you love me and are smiling at me today. May your smile become the most important thing to me. May Jesus and his grace become more beautiful and believable to me. That's the way you pray. You want to add some fire to your prayers? Pray for your heart to be changed, to care more about what God thinks about you than what other people think about you. That will add some fervency <laughs> to your prayers because we all need it. And here's, again, what's fascinating. Last thing I'll say about this. Like Martin Lloyd-Jones said, 90% of people that profess faith in Christ believe the, teacher's gospel, the false teacher's gospel rather than Paul's, rather than the true gospel. But what this story tells us is even if you consider yourself one of the 10% of the people that get the true gospel, you can still fall back. Right? Because Peter did. And he had a vision and a voice to convince him of what the gospel was. So don't be so hard on yourself, but run back to Jesus and his grace. Let's pray.